We're continuing our series, Cultural Counterfeits. What do I mean by cultural counterfeits? First, I should mention that I chose the title for this series after reading a book of the same title because I'm that creative. Um, I found it actually to be really helpful. You know, as a father to two young girls, uh, this book, Cultural Counterfeits, was written with uh, girls, women in mind. Um, And so I picked it up kind of as a father trying to approach some of these issues uh, that are prevalent in today's culture and time. And I found that book to be incredibly helpful. There's a copy of it on the bookshelf, in in the bookshelf, if you're interested in reading that. Um, But yeah, that's, that's where we get the title for this series. In today's culture, we find ourselves surrounded by messages, ideals, issues, and topics. Through this series, we want to show how we as believers should think about those things, consider those messages that we're taking in, how we should engage with these topics in a wise and winsome way, and through the lens of the gospel. Culture itself is the characteristic features of a people, social group, or a nation, and is itself a mostly neutral thing. In culture, there are many things that we simply receive, uh, such as the 40-hour work week, the imperial system for measurement rather than the metric system. You're welcome, world. (laughs) Driving everywhere. Big cups for coffee? That's an American thing. Thank you. America. Free refills. I don't know if you've ever had uh, the opportunity to travel outside the United States, but that does not exist outside of the United States. They look at you a little bit funny. Putting ice in our drinks. We kind of like these things. There's nothing evil about ice in your drinks. We like those things. However, within culture, there are a myriad of voices, and they're all clamoring for our attention. And they are trying to influence with messages promoting ideologies and values that are contrary to the ways of God. We see these messages everywhere in social media, entertainment, and more. If you noticed in the graphic that we've used for this uh, series, designed by our very own Ron, uh, there's all these things that are just kind of out there. This is where the messages uh, are most commonly engaged with and uh, just they, they come at us quickly and they entice us with the promises of meaning and purpose to life. The reason these messages are counterfeit is because they're deceptive. They promise things that they can't deliver on. The promises are empty and destructive. Hence the title for this series, Cultural Counterfeits. The aim of this series is to help anchor you in the truth of the gospel that alone can satisfy and bring life. Because ultimately what we know is that God's ways are better. And that's really what we want to highlight. And so as we go through this series, we will mention certain messages, certain things that we're seeing and topics we're seeing. But we're really going to talk about how God offers the better way to live a better way to understand these things and how the gospel can help us to interact with these things. Today we're talking about humanity, specifically relating to our bodies. Now this message will serve as part one of two because I figured you didn't want to be here for two hours. 
Maybe you do, but you don't want to listen to me for two hours. So next week, I'll speak a bit more on identity and God's purposes for sexuality. These are sensitive topics, and I know for some with children, um, you may not be ready for that conversation with them quite yet. And so what we're going to do is open up our kids' ministry uh, for basically all ages. Um, you know, hopefully you're not 32 and not ready to have this conversation yet. Um, but if you have kids that you're just not ready for them to hear that yet, you want to be the one to have that conversation with them, kids' ministry will be open for those, uh, those young ones. Because we understand that, you know, these are conversations that usually happen in the home with mom and dad. Today's message won't really get into anything, you know, too much in that vein. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're fine with your kids being out here for this one, uh, I promise there's nothing, nothing too uh, PG, PG-13, anything like that. As well, we're unable to cover every topic out there. You know, if we were to try to attempt to cover every topic, we'd be in a topical series till Jesus came back. <laughs> Our main way of preaching is to preach through books of the Bible. But we recognize that there are times uh, when we need to address certain things and, and show what the gospel says about those things. So that's what we're trying to do in this short series. And we might not even be able to fully cover every angle of the topics we have selected. So, for instance, we're talking about humanity today. There's so much more that I could say about humanity um, than I can put into a 75-minute sermon. I mean, 40-minute sermon. 35-minute <laughs> sermon? We'll see. And so I want to invite you, if you do have questions about some of the things that we don't cover or don't cover to the depth that you're wanting, um, come talk to us. Come talk to one of the elders. Come talk to me. Be glad to sit down and talk with you. I don't pretend to have all the answers to all the questions. Mike does. <laughs> I also want to mention, because I'm full of mentioning things today, that I have created somewhat of a book resource list. It's in the office. If you're looking for books that talk a lot about the topics we're in, um, we're engaging with, uh, I, these are books that I've found to be trustworthy, um, gospel-centered. doesn't mean that I fully endorse everything said by any of these authors, um, but I've come to trust these authors pretty well. And today's message specifically has been shaped a lot by this book by Sam Elbury, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. And I keep a copy of this in the bookshelf as well, so uh, grab it if you want to read it, read it, and bring it back so somebody else can read it. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your life that you have given to us. As the song says, you breathe life, and it's your breath that fills our lungs. Father, I ask that as we cover these uh, sensitive topics, you would give us grace, uh, grace to receive and understand your ways for us and to thank you for that, but as well grace for those who might struggle in these areas. Lord, help us to be a people uh, ready to bring the light of the gospel to a darkened world, not people who are just going to go bash people over the head. Help us to be those who are first responders running into the battle to bring hope and grace and to be, as our brother Tom puts it, involved in the ministry of loss prevention. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I want to begin by identifying who it is that is behind any of the counterfeit messages that we will address through this series. 
See, too often we only look at those who are enslaved by sin as the direct cause of these things. Unbelievers are enslaved by sin. They're deceived in their sin. They're dead in sin as the scripture describes them. But they are not our enemy. However, there is a very real enemy. Ephesians 6.12 shows us who this enemy is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Satan and his forces are the powers behind the world system and the counterfeit messages. This, of course, does not remove culpability or guilt uh, from people who are dead in their sin and, and lost in sin. Those who do not believe the gospel and reject Christ will stand before God and face eternal judgment. That is true. But I want to make it clear at the beginning who is behind any of the messages that we have in sight. Though we need to be aware of this very real enemy, we don't have to live in fear. Because the scriptures tell us that Jesus has overcome the world. He has conquered and triumphed over Satan and one day will return, excuse me, and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So as I said earlier, the counterfeit message we're talking about today will deal with humanity, specifically looking at our body and what God has made this body for. What are some of the messages about humanity and the body? Our culture is inundated with the idea and the promise of autonomy. This is never more obvious than the phrase, my body, my choice. The familiar slogan arose as part of the feminist movement in the late 1960s by those wanting the right to an abortion. And it's just one example of personal autonomy. Now, if autonomy were merely about the ability to make decisions, we would find some common ground there. But there still would be nuance to consider, and we'll explore that later in this message. According to the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, autonomy is an individual's capacity for self-determination or self-governance. Personal autonomy is the capacity to decide for oneself and pursue a course of action in one's life, often regardless of any particular moral content. However, even in philosophy, disagreements arise concerning the extent of autonomy. For instance, the American philosopher Harry Frankfurt used the example of the drug addict to show that an addict may not be able to act autonomously, full of tongue ties today, when taking a drug that they're addicted to. Addiction in that situation forms the desire. Another message, dualism, is a philosophy of self dating all the way back to the Greek philosopher Plato. Dualism teaches that the mind and body are separate and distinct. He would refer to the mind or the soul as the psyche. And this gives way to the modern idea that the real you is not your body. The real you is your mind or your soul. The body is just a physical frame in which you inhabit, but doesn't define the real you. Certainly we would agree that there is a body and a soul. But where dualism goes wrong is the idea that the soul is the real you and the body is not. Dualism is portrayed in the movie Avatar. In this movie, which I've mentioned before in a sermon, humans have the ability to sort of plug into another body. They can 
use these machines and their mind is transferred, uh, so to speak, to these bodies, these alien bodies. And they have the ability to fully animate them. The main character who is paralyzed is then able to walk and to run and to do all these things he's never been able to do or not been able to do in a long time. And in the end, he decides to remain in that Avatar body uh, in a very weird scene. Um, I won't go into detail. Uh, I actually enjoyed the movie for the most part, uh, but it gets into some weird stuff. The concept of personal or bodily autonomy is deeply intertwined with these prevailing philosophies of self and personhood. It's from these perspectives that the modern notions of sexuality and identity emerge, as we'll look at next week. A good resource on the present-day conception of self is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Um, This is a large book. Um, I I was talking to Ken, and I'm just completing the audio version of it, so it's like 17 hours of listening. Uh, But there is a shortened version uh, if you're looking for that. These counterfeit messages um, of autonomy and dualism shape why people might not view their body as their real self, and they can cause tremendous harm, especially in our youth. And what we see around us is that the world performs this really weird dance surrounding these things. Because I'm sure we've heard um, the message of acceptance of your body while simultaneously hearing the idea of rejecting your body. We hear people saying, be true to yourself, embrace your body image, this is who you are. And people just need to accept the real you. While at the same time, we hear that your body is not the real you. So you need to reject what your body says about you. You have autonomy to change it to fit who the real you is. Now perhaps you find yourself wrestling with the challenges of body image. As images bombard us constantly of people with unattainable beauty. I just want to say that, first of all, the images that we often see of beauty, 99% of the time are fake. There's this wonderful tool called Photoshop. And so we might see these ads saying, buy this magic product, and you too can look like this Photoshopped image of this supermodel. They have yet to design a pill that can make me six feet tall. But this is a very real struggle. Many struggle with this. Perhaps even here, uh, you struggle with this, and many become more and more uncomfortable with the body that they have. It's it's a common struggle. As we think through what it is to be human, to live in this body that God has given us, uh, let's look at what the scripture says. Let's start where it begins for humans. That's a good spot. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, 
It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So we enter the story of creation here on day six. God has been creating a world that's ready to go for his prized creation, mankind. For the first five days, God has finished his work at the end of the day and said it was good. But on day six, notice, after creating man and woman, he says, it is very good. When God makes man and he makes woman, he calls them very good. In this passage, God declares his intent to make mankind. And he creates mankind in his image. Theologians call this the Imago Dei, which is just really creative because it's just Latin for the image of God. But this image of God is what sets us apart from all of God's other creation. See, out of the overflow of God's love shared in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God creates the universe. Now, as we saw in the book of Hebrews, there's aspects of this that we have to receive by faith. God created the universe through the word of his mouth. As God paints on the canvas of creation, he displays his beauty and glory. And he places as the jewel of his creation, man and woman, giving them dominion and authority to serve as his representatives of his reign on this earth. Humanity was created to tend, develop, care for God's creation just as he would. To reflect, continue, and to extend God's creative rule. So being made in God's image does not mean that we physically look like God. It does mean that we share characteristics and attributes. We are conscious and relational beings. Notice in verse 27, it is not simply that God created people. It says male and female, he created them. And so what this shows us is that God's creation was without accident. There's no accident to how God has designed us. This is how God created us for the purpose of serving as his image bearers. How he has created us gives us the ability to serve in a unique way, men and women. Now we know how the story of creation goes. All you have to do is turn to chapter 3 of Genesis. Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree that God commanded them not to eat of, and sin enters the world. Sin is then passed down through Adam's seed to all people. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And this is speaking of all of us who are part of Adam's seed. All of humanity is now corrupted by sin. And so does that have consequences for our bodies? Yes. However, all of us are still created as God's workmanship. Our bodies are carefully made by God. Psalm 139, 13 and 14. For you were For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So both the inner and outer parts of our bodies are formed by God. For some, this can be a hard thought to process because our bodies are also broken 
by the fall. And for some, that has caused very deep pain. There are some, perhaps in this room, or some in our families, that it's hard to see God's wonderful workmanship as we see their suffering that they're going through. And so the pain and struggle connected with the body is very real. Leads often to a lot of struggle and suffering. And so my heart aches for those with debilitating and um, chronic conditions, psychological suffering, and the thinking that these counterfeit messages often produce in people's minds. Scripture doesn't deny the reality of this struggle, doesn't gloss over the reality of this struggle, and is able to uniquely account for it. So, with imperfect and fallen bodies, we can still believe, like David, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. What this means is that the body that you have is the body that God meant for you to have, even when not everything about it is wonderful. God purposely made your body. It wasn't random or an accident, though the body has been marred by sin, by the fallen condition of this world. Dualism, as I brought out earlier, separates body and soul in such a way that the body is seen as irrelevant to who you are, almost as an accessory. You wear it like you would wear shoes. And so if I don't like these shoes, I can swap them out for another pair, right? I probably will when I get home. However, what we see in scripture is that the body is not just something that you have. It is a part of who you are. So your body is not accidental, but it is also not incidental. And creation declares that. When God created Adam, he didn't create a soul and then look around his creation for some sort of body sleeve that he could just slide Adam's soul into. What does Genesis say? Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed Adam, or I'm sorry, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So God forms Adam's body first and then breathes into it, creating life. Adam is body and soul, and his body and soul are intrinsic to who he is. And so it is with you and me. Sam, Sam Albury, in this book that I showed you earlier, writes, Your body is you. It is not nothing. It's not even just something. But neither is it everything. It is not the totality of who you are. In the account of creation, we see that Adam is not just a body. God made him, but then needed to breathe his own life-giving breath into the matter he had formed for Adam to come alive. On its own, unanimated by God, the body cannot be a living creature. There is no life apart from God's breath. And so you are a soul and you are a body. Whereas dualism treats the body as nothing but an avatar that is malleable to whatever you desire, the scripture reveals that together body and soul make up the whole you. Now, at times, scripture will talk about soul and body distinctly. But it's never in opposition. Most often, when the words we tend to translate as soul are used in both Old and New Testaments, it's referring to the whole person. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. When Peter writes the salvation of your souls, he is not saying that your soul will be saved, but not your body. Rather, he is writing of the whole self, including the body. In verse 3 of this same chapter, he grounds the hope of the believer in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the whole of who we are is saved in Christ, though we currently are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And so the body is not accidental, and it is not incidental. A scripturally informed view on what humanity is and what your body is will help you to see through the fog of the many messages we hear and see in today's culture of who the real you is. Your inner sense doesn't determine who you are. God does. Who you are cannot be considered without reference to your body and cannot be made without reference to God, our very good creator. We still are the created. He is the creator. Scripture shows that the body you have, though fallen and frail because of sin, is a gift from a good God, a good creator. You are the real you because God has created you to be you. And that's all good. But there's still the lingering problem of sin and the fallen condition of our bodies. What does the gospel say in all of this about the body? Well, actually quite a bit. We have addressed the body and soul, but let's kind of double back to talk about autonomy for a moment as we look at what the gospel says. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. The New Living Translation, a paraphrase version, is a little bit helpful here with Romans 8, 5. Uh, It says those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. Before the new birth, you were enslaved to your sin. You were enslaved to your sinful nature. And one bound by the sin nature cannot help but sin. That doesn't mean that every action is the most evil it could ever be, but that the unbeliever is dominated by the nature of sin, and so sinful actions are produced. And yes, humans have a will. We have choice. I might ask that we think about the quote-unquote free will a little differently than perhaps some think about it. But under the dominion of sin, our choice is sin because it's our nature. Personal autonomy would say you have no master, but the scriptures clearly teach that is not the case. You are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Romans six seventeen and 18, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So the believer is a slave to righteousness. Now this does not mean that you are obeying against your will or that you're forced to obey or else. Rather, it means you now obey from the heart. The heart wants this. Sin no longer defines you. One preacher says it like this. You're now allergic to sin. And yeah, you may do it occasionally, just as I, who am allergic to everything, (laughs) might sometimes walk outside. 
I might sometimes visit somebody who has cats, much to my detriment. I do it occasionally, though it's not the best for me. That's why I stay inside, but alas, I'm also allergic to most of the things inside. Sin is no longer who you are. This new heart that you've been given hates sin and loves righteousness. And so the believer will battle their sin. But there's also this weakness of the fallen condition at war, right? And so you might give in to the flesh and maybe even for a period of time give into grievous sin. But the true believer will be drawn back by the grace of God. Sin brought about by the brokenness of our bodies. We feel it. We know it. And the answer for all the brokenness in our bodies, all the suffering, all the shame, all the sin that we see, the sin that binds us, is the broken body of Jesus Christ. He was broken to make us whole. In order for Jesus to be broken to save sinners, Jesus would have to become flesh. And so Jesus was embodied. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. At the center of our faith, at the core of what we believe, is that Jesus came to save sinners, and to do so he became flesh. Though he remained God, 100% God, 100% human. God's math is a little different than ours. But this says a lot about what God thinks about the body. He doesn't see the body as meaningless. He sees it as valuable. He was embodied, and in his body, Jesus faced all sorts of temptation. Therefore, Jesus is able, as Hebrews 4 says, to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, not that he was tempted with each and every sin, but that he faced every kind of trial. Dane Ortland, in his book, um, Gentle and Lowly, sums it up. He knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. Jesus experienced the brokenness of this world, though he didn't sin himself. He lived a perfect life, and in his death, burial, and resurrection, he purchased the forgiveness of sin and relationship with God for those who would believe on his son. Though we live in a fallen world and experience the effects of it, we have hope because of Jesus. Romans 8 18 through 25, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, 
For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says that creation, including our bodies, have been subjected to futility. Another word for futility is frustration. Man, we feel that frustration, don't we? We feel it in our bodies. I can count more gray hairs in my beard and my hair. I can see my receding hairline. I see my body aging as time goes on. And my shoulder and my hip hurt like never before. Even the dust. And I was out in the entryway earlier and wiped a really nice layer of dust off of the table. Even the dust is proof of death. And this frustration, this futility. As I wiped the table, I was wiping off pieces of my brothers and sisters in Christ here. (laughs) The dust is tiny reminders of death. As our cells literally turn back to dust. But Jesus came to bring hope in the midst of the frustration. And so we groan while we wait eagerly for the full adoption and redemption of our bodies. Sometimes that groaning is because we see the sin around us. Sometimes that's the groaning as we try to get off the couch and it hurts. But we groan as we wait eagerly for the full adoption and redemption of our bodies. For now, when a believer dies, their soul is separated from the body as the soul goes into the presence of Jesus But when Jesus returns, he's not simply going to place our souls into a different avatar, as we talked about earlier. He will resurrect these bodies, not in their current fallen state, but in a resurrected and glorified version, just as Jesus was resurrected. And he's going to reunite our soul and resurrected body. And we will be like he is. You know, Jesus didn't ditch his body After he rose from the grave. He rose in his body. Though resurrected and glorified. He ascended to heaven in his body. He sits at the right hand of the father. In his body. And he will return one day. In his body. When he returns. You'll have your resurrected body. And all the years. Of chasing after Eden. And futility. Will come to an end. We will live out our truer purpose of imaging God. Reigning with him for all eternity over the earth. That's the hope of these bodies. That's the beauty of what God has given us in these bodies. And that's why it's so important that we started here as we talk about some of these very sensitive issues. We need to have a framework for why the body matters. Why humanity matters. It's hard to talk about our sexuality and our identity and gender and those things without having a good foundation of what humanity is and what these bodies are. So how does all of this help us with interacting with counterfeit messages? See, these insights from the scripture on being made in the image of God, as I've just said, what it is to be human, speak to the shifting views towards humanity, life, death, gender, sexuality. And we'll talk about that next week. And certainly you'll face, if you haven't already, those who believe the scriptures to be wrong. That a biblical view on these things uh, ought to be rejected as bigoted and full of hatred. 
one thing I want to mention, you know, as we work through these things, I want us to be careful and sensitive, winsome in how we handle these things, but also let us not be surprised uh, that this is the current tone of the culture because Jesus told us we would be hated as he was. And so we should think it not strange. few thoughts of application here. First, I want to encourage you to pray. Pray for those who are not yet Christians. Pray for those who are still in darkness, blinded and deceived by the enemy. Prayer is often treated as a backseat type of thing. Oh, yeah, I guess I could pray. There's that too. Um, Prayer is a primary weapon for the believer. And not to weaponize it in the sense of attack, but um, this is a primary thing that we have. It's a good gift that we can go to our Heavenly Father and, and tell him about these things. He is fully aware of it, but he has ordained prayer to be the way that he often interacts in his people's lives. And so also pray for believers who are struggling with false thinking on these things. Uh, Perhaps as believers have become believers, they've brought with them some old ways of thinking. Perhaps they've um, struggled to have a framework for these things. And so just pray for your brothers and sisters that they are able to think through these things have burdens lifted. Pray that the gospel would go forward and that Jesus would continue to build his church and that the light would break through the darkness of people's minds and that they would receive with faith the good news. There is a spiritual battle. Let us not grow dull to that. We fight by proclaiming Christ and in prayer. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. As well, Ephesians 6, 13 through 18. Earlier we read verse 12, so let's pick up with verses 13 through 18. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The armor of God, these are all synonyms for the gospel. The devil attacks the mind with thoughts, accusations, false messages, How do we tear these strongholds, these counterfeit messages down? By believing the true message. By believing the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Trust in the promises of Christ. And the hope of his return to vanquish evil and to right all wrongs. Secondly, to those with children. The things we see around us can be frightening as we consider our young ones as we think about the world that they're growing up in, specifically how messages like this can shape our young people, I encourage you to not give in to fear. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. 
God has sovereignly placed you where you are. He has sovereignly given you the children that you have in this time. And so rest assured that he is with you in this. Teach your children what it is to be made in the image of God. What a gift it is to be human. And that God has a great purpose for them. Teach them how to engage culture and to be, as Jesus instructed his disciples, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That word harmless can mean gentle. Above all else, teach them the gospel. Primarily, teach them the gospel. It alone has the power to change people's hearts. It's good and right for us to know God's ways and his plans for the body. But we are powerless without the gospel. Lastly, there are many here who feel the deep pain that I've spoken of in connection with the body. I would be lying if I haven't if I said I haven't experienced that as well. I wasn't planning on saying all this, but to just let you have a little peek into my life, I've, I've struggled with health issues my entire life. Whether it's diabetes or asthma or some of these other things, and I know that there are those who have much worse conditions than what I have, but I've, I've known the pain of not having relief from those things. And though it doesn't bother me to be five foot four anymore, I can tell you that as a child it bothered me greatly to always be the short one, to always be the one at the butt of every joke. God has given me grace for that, and please understand, I embrace the jokes now. I make most of them about myself. Um, God has given me a sense of humor to go along with it. It helps that every good friend I've had has been over six foot four. <laughs> so Mike, Randy, Randy, I don't know how tall you actually are, but you guys are good friends. You may be one who suffers from chronic illnesses, pain in your body, psychological suffering. Perhaps you have a struggle feeling comfortable with the body that you have and you have a hard time seeing it as a good gift from a good creator. You wonder how could he have messed up so much with creating you. Perhaps you question how um, a good God could have allowed all these sorts of suffering. I want to be clear, your struggle likely is not because of any sin that you have committed. But it is a result of the fallen condition of this world. It is a result of sin in this world that our bodies deal with this pain. And your pain that you experience now, however intense, is not ultimate. Your suffering, though, is real. And it is worthy of careful consideration It is worth our time to care for one another. There are brothers and sisters in Christ here who would love to come alongside you and help you to bear that burden. Perhaps you haven't felt freedom yet to share those things with others. And so I just would ask you to pray about that, encourage you in that, that perhaps one day you might share something like that with others so that they can come alongside you and help you walk that out. 
if you need someone to talk to, I know um, that there are many here who would be willing to talk to you. And if you want to talk to me or Mike, I know we'd be glad to. But if you're not comfortable talking to me or Mike, there are others here as well. Lastly, the only hope for sufferers and sinners is the body of Jesus. Broken fully and finally for us. And so by looking to his broken body, we find true hope for our own.